I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. One of the people who really helped me in my life was my high school guidance counselor. And his name is Dennis Butts. I believe he's still alive. I found him a few years ago, and he's living in Florida. I hope that he is living well. Um, He was in in the fortunate position as a high school guidance counselor in the mid-1980s to have a bunch of money that was funded by the 1980s just say no kinds of programs for drug and alcohol use prevention. And this got filtered down into the high schools. And they were actually able to do some programs and they just gave this guy some money And so one of the things he and a few other people did in the state of Illinois where I grew up was they did this thing, they called it Operation Snowball. And it had weekends, weekend retreats. And at those weekend retreats, you would have big groups of adolescents who would get into small groups and talk uh, about what was really going on in their lives. And there was a adult and a teen facilitator in each group. And it was all predicated on just active listening, the kind that I talked about um, on the first day that Carl Rogers promoted. And it was the first time that I was really ever listened to in that way. And it, was, it had such a profound effect on me that I guess I just decided to do it for the rest of my life. And Dennis Butts taught a bunch of high school kids active listening in this Rogerian, as they call it, way, which is what they teach in college when people want to become a therapist. So you could say I have been doing this since I was 15. But what's more important about this is just his willingness to um, have, have these kinds of relationships and really create a container where there could be this connection and honest interaction. He would often tell the story of the starfish, which you may have heard, something like a man is walking along the beach and he sees a small figure in the distance and he goes up to this young woman who's throwing starfish back in the ocean and he looks and there's just hundreds of thousands of starfish that have washed up on the beach and it'll be, you know, it's the tide's going out, they won't make it. And he says, what are you doing? And she says, "I'm, I'm throwing these starfish back into the water so that they can live. And he says, well, this you're never going to save all these starfish. She says, well, but to this one, it, it will make a difference. And so he, 
he had, he had me draw a little starfish and he made these buttons that say, I make a difference. I mean, this is the, the support that I was fortunate enough to have at a very um, young age. And yet, we can't know truly what the effect will be for that starfish or any of the other aspects of nature. We can have an aspiration, an intention to save all beings, and that, and that is what we're doing here. But the truth is we don't know. We don't know what will happen. This whole thing with all of these moving parts, every single thing, it's complicated for our little human minds. And even though we may have the, the best intention, very often there are unintended consequences because everything is so complex. What can we do? I have an example of some unintended consequences. And this is about the attempt at, at saving lions. Canine distemper virus, a pathogen related to measles, can affect big cats as well as dogs. It's wreaking havoc in tiger populations across the world, and it's cropped up in lions. One such outbreak in 1994 killed about a third of the lion population in the Serengeti. This immediately spurred an effort to help the lions by vaccinating the domestic dogs that carry the virus. The lions rebounded, probably from a combination of the vaccine drive and their own immune defenses against the virus. But one group of scientists argued that the push to save lions from the virus had the unintended consequence of harming cheetahs, who are often preyed upon by lions. So this researcher, they used computer simulations to predict that vaccine drives aimed at saving lions could eliminate cheetah populations in decades. And they say, prioritizing one species over the other could unknowingly lead to the decrease and even potential disappearance of a non-target species, the scientists wrote. It is now widely accepted that with current limits to funding, conservationists may be faced with a lose-lose situation where the options may be to one, do nothing and potentially lose one or several species, or two, guarantee the safety of one or a few species but also condemn others to extinction. Now, this is, the, this is what we're faced with if we have a, a goal to save the lions. What, what is driving that goal, though? What is the heart really meaning to bring forward into the world? This treasuring, this um, acknowledgement of the preciousness of life and diversity of life. So I want to also share an example of how it's not always damned if you do, damned if you don't. Sometimes there are even intended consequences. The bald eagle's recovery is an American success story. Forty years ago, the bald eagle, our national symbol, was in danger of extinction through most of its range, habitat destruction and degradation, illegal shooting, 
and the contamination of its food source due to the use of pesticide DDT decimated the eagle population. Habitat protection afforded by the Endangered Species Act, the federal government's banning of DDT, and conservation actions taken by the American public helped bald eagles make a remarkable recovery. Bald eagles no longer need Endangered Species Act protection because their population is protected, healthy, and growing. As one of our chants says, flowers fall with our attachment, weeds spring up with our aversion. So what do we do? We are chanting Shantideva's Way of the Bodhisattva in the evenings. And this is all about cultivating bodhicitta, an awakened heart, a desire to alleviate suffering. And as we mentioned, a bodhisattva is a, an awakening being, a being whose intention is to awaken with all beings, all beings, no one left out. So to generate this quality, this bodhicitta, this awakened heart, this desire to alleviate suffering, Shantideva's way of the bodhisattva is a, is a map for this. I'm going to share with you just a little bitty bit of it. And we chant a, a different part of it. But it's so rich and uh, such a gift that we've been given by our ancestors. Similarly, we have the precepts to guide us when things are confusing or scary. Not to do evil, to do good, to do good for others. This sounds great, sounds really simple, but it actually gets pretty sticky when we try to do good for others. And when we get kind of caught in that, we can end up in what's called helping prison. Helping prison is when we get trapped in our roles and we lose the humanness that is present. Helping prison is when I'm the helper. And helping prison is when you have to be the helpee. Helping prison is when I'm invested in the outcome of your life for my own benefit. It is, as Carl Rogers called it, possessive, a possessive kind of attention. If my doing good requires your behavior, your gratitude, or any particular outcome, how could that be anything but controlling? Helping prison is when we are helping with a muddy intention, when we're identifying with our role, and when helping gets confused with the rewards for helping. So I want to just share a little bit about how this is pointing to the muddiness or clarity of our intention when we are taking action in service or attempting, endeavoring to be in service. So these are some things that can muddy our intention. This book, by the way, is called How Can I Help by Ram Das and Paul Gorman. It was, uh, came out in about 1985, around the time I was hanging out in Operation Snowball. And um, I noticed that the clothing from that time is now coming back into fashion and it's called Vintage. So here's this really sweet book from 
back in the day. It says, in regards to how we muddy our intention, all of us can recognize some truth to the plea of conditioning, first by our parents, then by our teachers. From earliest childhood, many of us are told, be good and help. Helpfulness gets encouraged, rewarded, because it makes the household function more efficiently. Help out becomes a euphemism for obedience or compliance. Once we come to associate it with rewards, we start to use helping in the service of a wide range of personal motives other than the expression of natural compassion. We might empty the trash in order to get the use of the family car or go to the store to fetch ingredients so mother will make our favorite cookies. We might be seeking to compensate for a lack of self-esteem, feelings of unworthiness or incompleteness. Need praise? Help out. For many, the ability to aid others can provide a needed sense of power or respectability. Many of us help out as a way of compensating for a deeper sense of helplessness. We don't have to face our own quite so much when we're busy treating someone else's. Or maybe we're just plain lonely. Intimacy is what we're looking for, and it's often there to be found in a helping relationship. Rare indeed is the individual for whom the helping act does not arise in part out of some personal motive. To the extent that it does, however, what we're looking for is a role that meets a need, our need. We're looking to be helpers, not simply to be helpful. A personal agenda leads us to invest in the position, not simply the function. And we invest in others' reactions to it as well. So here's an example of, um, I'll, just, I'll just set this up. The, in any relationship, there's a place in which one of us enjoys being the wise and compassionate one. We understand someone a little too quickly, volunteer advice just too soon. Sometimes we have to be shown that all of us are better off when we're free of attachment to being helpers. So this is the story I want to share. I'm not sure... I'm not sure who, who's telling it. Maybe it's Ram Dass. I happened to have been on a mountaintop in a state of great bliss when a stranger suddenly appeared next to me, sat down, and immediately started to describe this problem he was going through. By the time I'd pulled myself out of the higher realms, he'd already detailed the whole drama, the cast of characters, and the decisions he was facing. I hadn't gotten a bit of it. Nothing. Nobody. Moreover, it was much too late to ask him to run it all down once more. He would have felt very uncomfortable, justifiably. So there I was, intimate confidant to a deep problem without the slightest idea of who was who and who had done what to whom. My first reaction was to laugh hysterically. It was one of those great human condition moments, but this guy was obviously in distress and looking for a kindly pair of ears, so I picked up as best I could. To my continued amazement, none of the details became any clearer as we walked down the mountain. I kept hoping I'd find out who she really was and what he had actually done. No such luck. And I wasn't about to ask a question that would reveal my total ignorance, make him feel terrible, just lead me to hysterical laughter, so we just quietly walked on down. 
And from time to time, I would punctuate the conversation with what seemed like appropriate remarks. That must have been hard. What did you feel then? Oh, yes, I've been through that one before. Boy, things sure do get confused in life. Great insights like that. And he would nod appreciatively, continue, and I'd, main, I'd contain my sense of this wonderful human absurdity. Meanwhile, I was growing increasingly fond of this guy and feeling great empathy for his problem, whatever it was. When we reached the bottom of the hill, he stopped for a moment and then suddenly embraced me. I just want you to know how incredibly helpful you've been, he said. You're one of the most understanding, compassionate people I have ever met. Do you think we could have another conversation like this again? I was dumbfounded. It was one of the great moments in my life. Sure, I said, I'd love to. And he walked off to join some other people, a number of whom kept coming to me during the day saying, what did you tell Eddie? He's just so grateful to you. He says you're wonderful. So. Our intention and the outcome may be very different. So this doesn't just happen in the helping professions. It happens in the realm of social justice and social change. This is a little bit about uh, from someone who is um, an activist in the uh, nuclear uh, anti-nuclear activist. And this person shares a little bit about the importance of our own attitude and our own heart that we bring to whatever work we're doing. They say, but much of the time we come into social action, knocking on a door with a petition, addressing a meeting, writing a pamphlet, showing up at a demonstration, or just talking informally, and we're just a little self-righteous. We're convinced we've got something to say, something we're correct about. We've got our ideology and our scenario. Here's how the situation really is, and the facts that back it up, and if you take the time to read them, and if we don't all do this, there's gonna be that, so you better get started, and right away, right now. Some of the time this attitude is blatant, at other times it's more understated, but at some level, what we're communicating is the feeling that we know, others don't, and we've got to change minds. Changing minds is a tricky game, especially when it's being fed with urgency and self-righteousness. There's often an air of superiority in what we say. People instinctively back off. They feel like they're being told, being should upon, Social action, if they understand intuitively, ought to be fully voluntary, if it's to have power and endurance. But we're not quite leaving them enough room when we set about trying to change their minds. We don't have the inclusiveness, the steadiness, the real willingness to listen that is critical at the outset of any action. It's not quite us. It's this one trying to move that one. In that environment, concerned as we are with results, we call on tactics of persuasion, appealing to states of mind that get people going. We begin to manipulate consciousness, play to anger, go for fear. There's always guilt. 
These basic states of mind are always lurking about, looking to be fed. They find plenty of nourishment in the world of social action, anger at oppression, guilt at being better off, fear of violence, and the greater power of others. They make a good case for themselves, pointing to all the provocation and evidence right here at hand. Sometimes these feelings get us going, just the kick in the pants we may need. And we can keep them in check, in fact, work with them. We can turn anger at injustice into cool, steady resolve. We can flip fear of war into greater reverence for life. We can find in feelings of guilt a call to greater moral sensitivity and alertness. Notice that transformation. Yet left to themselves, fear, anger, and guilt are unwholesome states of mind. How many of us have them fully in control in our private lives? So, cleaning up our own side of the street is a phrase often used in the 12 steps. And it is really the only thing we have control over. And even that, there's very little we control. Thank goodness I'm not in charge of the function of my own liver. I would be dead in probably hours if I was in charge of that. I don't control that. There's so much we don't control. But we can cultivate this heart of, of compassion or any of the other values that you may have identified for yourself that is alive in you, that is awakened by the people who are inspiring to you or the suffering that you observe in the world that touches you. How does that cultivate, enlarge, this heart. So I want to share a little bit about what's happening right now, or at least happened this summer in Portland in the throes of this summer's Black Lives Matter protests when the Federal Department of Homeland Security troops were called to Portland. Portland. There was a range of response. How do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to injustice? When, when we feel that urge, the, the definition of compassion is the, the suffering with and the desire to alleviate suffering. It's that energy. It's that urge. What do we do with that? So there was marching. There were speeches at the site of the federal building. There were some speeches off-site. There were some rallies held by all kinds of different groups, including one of the city council women. There were these car marches that they called, you know, because it's COVID times. So people would just get in their car and drive around. And there were, and this was all organized, I think, on Facebook, hundreds of cars with all their signs and beeping and flags and horns for miles. So they would have a particular route that they'd all agree on. And it was incredible to see. It just went on and on. One of them went by my house and it just was Hundreds of, hundreds of cars. There was the wall of moms that just all locked arms and stood up in a, 
in a line uh, in front of the, the troops. And what followed them was the dad pod, the dads that had uh, leaf blowers, and they brought their leaf blowers to blow the, the tear gas away. There was a wall of veterans, and there was Antifa, and I want to be careful to represent them accurately. But I found what seems like a good description, though I'm willing to stand corrected, which in general I aspire to being open to learning all the time. So I found this definition. Antifa is short for anti-fascists, though the name by no means includes everyone who opposes fascism. The Antifa is a relatively small movement of the far left with ties to anarchism. It arose in Europe's punk scene in the 1980s to fight neo-Nazism. Neo the Antifa says that because Nazism and white supremacy are violent, we must use any means necessary to stop them. This includes physical means. So that definition is from Lori Marhof. And on her website, she is an historian of queer and trans politics and wrote a book on fascism and the politics of sex called Sex in the Weimar Republic, German Homosexual Emancipation and the Rise of the Nazis. So it re-examines the gay and trans rights movements of the 1920s, which were the world's first. So this is someone who knows a lot more about this than I do. Um, and here's something she says about the violent response to Nazism. She says that these same tactics from Germany's communist opposition to Nazism backfired in the 1920s. And she says they are likely to backfire now. Confrontations escalate. Public opinion often blames the left, no matter what the circumstances are. She says, yes, we have an ethical obligation to stand against fascism and racism. But we also have an ethical obligation to do so in a way that doesn't help the fascists and racists more than it hurts them. So she points to the Southern Poverty Law Center and its recommendations to organize a joyful protest and ask the people that they've targeted to speak, organize it elsewhere, far away. She says, as long as it may, as hard as it may be to resist yelling at alt-right speakers, do not confront them. This does not mean ignoring Nazis, it means standing up to them in a way that denies them the chance for bloodshed. So I want to share an exemplar tonight of Jizo's quality of unflagging optimism. And one of the beautiful lines in uh, the Jizo ceremony, even if their good deeds are as little as a hair, a drop of water, a grain of sand, or a bit of down, I shall gradually help living beings to liberation. Unflagging optimism. Shannon Foley Martinez is a former neo-Nazi who now works to de-radicalize people 
who are still in the movement. She works without an office and smokes without an ashtray. <laughs> she alternates between her back patio, knees up, feet propped on the base of the deck table, and her front porch, where she reclines cross-legged in one of those low-to-the-ground camping and soccer games chairs. She does most of her work on Twitter, where she interacts with uh, people who are currently in the Nazi or neo-Nazi movements. She bartends about 30 hours a week, and her husband works at a restaurant. She's raising her seven children, ages three to 22, and a teenage stepson with autism. Her phone is a portal to her jumbled network of formers, academics, activists, law enforcement officers, policymakers, and amateur experts who are collectively working to counter the rise of far-right extremism. She says, it's a means of connection with actives. We've got actives and formers. It's a means of connection with actives that she hopes she can help to heal. So she's interacting with them over Twitter, other platforms. She steers their conversation away from doctrine. She's given up on the idea of changing people's minds via argument and towards emotion. She says, most of my change in worldview had literally nothing to do with the ideology. It had to do with why the ideology was seductive and felt empowering to me in the first place. This is a dialogue she's having with one of the actives. She says, anyway, it, it had to do with why the ideology was seductive and felt empowering to me in the first place. And he asks, why did it? She says, because I needed an explanation for why the world seemed like a threatening and brutal place for me. Because I wanted to believe in something that felt like it mattered and was part of something bigger. I'm going to say that again. I needed an explanation for why the world seemed like a threatening and brutal place for me because I wanted to believe in something that felt like it mattered and was part of something bigger. He asks, do you now believe in a different explanation or none? She says, well, I guess I have more understanding about why those needs rose to such an acute level in my life and also an understanding that what I chose didn't functionally meet my needs over the long term. She sees these conversations as her responsibility, as amends making for the four and a half years she spent perpetrating violence on everyone, Jewish, gay, or black people, her ideology told her to hate. My entire life, she's fond of saying, is predicated on apology. This doesn't mean she's mired in guilt. Instead, it means naming and working to repair the harm that she's caused. Anywhere my voice is invited to be, I will go, she says, from Holocaust museums to universities to the U.S. Institute of Peace. She says, there have to be white role models for what it means to unearth and begin to deal with our relationship with white supremacy. Her childhood was strict and it sounds like pretty disconnected, uh, upwardly mobile, middle-class family that valued conformity and perfectionism. And she felt disconnected there 
they moved when she was 11 and felt even more disconnected. Even though she was trying on different identities, different reading, including reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and listening to the Beatles. She played sports. She was even elected class president, but she still didn't feel like she fit in. And then she experienced a violent trauma at age 14. She tried to move on, but the trauma metastasized into a burning rage. Her music and books started getting darker. She drifted from the skateboarders to the punks and then realized the angriest people at the punk shows, the ones always getting into fights, were the skinheads. She started listening to their white power music. Things continued to fall apart with her family. There is no access to goodness in me, she decided. It won't be seen in me. So she turned to the skinheads, figuring she was joining people who couldn't judge her and would have to take her in. After all, who's worse than the Nazis, she said. So from 15 to 20, she was in that life. Some of the things she did, posted racist flyers in neighborhoods under windshield wipers on the doors of houses of worship, shouted racial epithets at strangers and neighbors, started fights at shows over the tiniest of slights, engaged in violence, attended Klan rallies, fell in with gun runners, paramilitary training, the whole thing, the whole thing. The, the work of dehumanization was demanding and constant. It was around this time when she was no longer welcome in her parents' home. She was in Texas and moved in with her then boyfriend's mother, a teacher named Carol Selby. Each time Martinez tells this part of her story, she insists she was an angry and imposing mess of a human when she showed up at Selby's door. But Selby remembers things differently. I thought she was cute, Selby says of Martinez. She had this real short hair and big eyes and a beautiful smile. Selby saw, or chose to see, not a vile skinhead, but more of a, quote, precious little elf. And this perspective gave her young charge room to breathe. Martinez did the dishes and helped take care of Selby's younger sons and realized she didn't want them to be exposed to her, quote, scumbag friends. For the first time in a long time, she began reflecting on the impact of her actions on other people. Within months, the white supremacist ideology, which Martinez had already begun to question, fell away. At the time of this interview, she said she's worked with about 75 actives, formers, and about a third of those have been intensive, ongoing relationships. She lands the occasional paid contract, but not always receives uh, speaking fees. Most of her work is entirely unpaid. After five years in that way of life, Martinez types to her uh, person that she's interacting with. After five years in that way of life, I began to see how it really kept me looking at the world through victimhood and that blaming, targeting Jews, blacks, and other races or ethnicities didn't make me actually feel any safer or more empowered. It just kept my world really small and kept me focused on hurt and pain. So he responds, so your current position is sort of a centrist self-improvement drive? A pattern was starting to emerge in this conversation. Martinez would seek to explore the emotional needs 
that had drawn her and him to violence-based extremism. And then he would try to pin down her new ideology. What simple answer of hers had replaced the simple answer to which he was still clinging? But she had no simple answer. Her unidimensional worldview was instead replaced with complexity. She tells him she doesn't have a label for herself, nor does she know all the answers. What are your biggest issues? She asks him, trying to pivot their conversation. It doesn't matter if he answers, especially not during this first round. He's engaging with her, and that's enough for now. Too often, she says, white supremacy is seen as an extremist ideology belonging only to a small group of terrorists. Quote, and so we have something outside of us as white people, that bad white supremacy out there, which then recuses us from having to do the internal work of identifying our own ways that we participate in and gain advantage from white supremacy. There's a temptation, she says, to blame it all on YouTube algorithms or sinister terrorist recruiters or other outside forces. But in fact, we're all implicated. She's taken responsibility and leading with this value to connect and unflagging optimism. I mean, can you imagine? Can you even imagine? But having lived it and known and been given, being seen with the eyes that can see the perfection even if their good deeds are as little as a hair, a drop of water, a grain of sand, or a bit of down, I shall gradually help living beings to liberation. There's no guarantee of the outcome. When we're focused on the outcome, we're subject to the worldly winds, the eight worldly winds, loss and gain, praise and blame, pleasure, pain, fame, disrepute. How can we live our vow without getting blown off course, blown off balance by the worldly winds? Another incredible exemplar is Viktor Frankl, who survived the concentration camps. He was an Austrian psychiatrist, and his entire family perished in the Holocaust. And the whole time he was in the concentration camps, he was living to share his understanding of the importance of meaning in a human life. 
That's what kept him going. And this was tested in hell realm. In short, this can be summed up with this quote by Viktor Frankl. He says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. The Nazis took everything from him, but they couldn't control his mind. He says, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds true for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. I want you to listen to what your conscience commands you to do and go on to carry it out to the best of your knowledge. Then you will live to see that in the long run, in the long run, I say, Success will follow you precisely because you had forgotten to think about it. So, So, what is an aspiration? It's not about the accomplishment. It's about being a kind of person. It's not, what am I going to do? But how do I want to be? How do I want to be in any circumstance? What can you carry with you in your heart that's genuine? How can you allow whatever that comes towards you to help cultivate that. And what follows our action may be unintended consequences and we may make mistakes, but what is a mistake anyway? What is a mistake when your vow is to be curious and to learn and to see the truth? What is a mistake when your vow is to do your best to turn problems into wisdom? 
Shanti Deva says that action and intention are two parts of bodhicitta. That intention is like the map, choosing a destination, and then action is really setting out to go there. And not to underestimate the importance of our intention. It's easy for our intention to become cloudy, which is why we practice to clarify our intention. And while people like Viktor Frankl and others who are just so impressive and may feel, make us feel a little daunted. Um, their live circumstances brought this out in them. And your life circumstances are different than theirs. So what is coming from you will be different, necessarily. And it's clarifying this intention and being able to depend on what's in your heart, to truly know it for yourself. This is the work we're doing. It's brave and important work. So thank you for practicing. <laughs>